Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. And update, thunderstorms still smell amazing. Yeah, it's like that weird yellowy atmosphere outside, and apparently there was hail earlier. I missed that, but... I also missed that, but yeah, really digging the the vibe we've got going for Mm -hmm. today's recording. It's good to be with you. Yes. And uh, what are we drinking this week? So we are drinking... um, absinthe mm-hmm. poured over ice which i understand is not traditional um and this is in part for two reasons one in is that it was an ingredient in last week's cocktail and wanted to use up some more of it um but two uh i wanted to tell a brief brief story new york is starting to open back up um and my wife and i went to an old favorite uh bar of ours i won't i won't give it away because i don't want to incriminate them and you and i also <laughs> don't want more people going there because it's one of my favorite places but at this bar they serve uh absinthe traditionally and when you order it it comes with a little sugar cube on top that's lit on fire um and they kind of pour the absinthe over it and it makes a big fire um really fun except uh this time while it was on you know the the flame was the small flame became a little bit of a bigger flame in the glass and the glass exploded there was a small table fire (laughs) um people other patrons had to come over dump their water on it to put it out everyone was fine no one was harmed um, but it uh-huh. felt like New York was back. And so as a sign of healing in return, <laughs> I wanted to honor that with uh, some absinthe this week. So cheers. cheers. Cheers to that. <laughs> and who are we talking to this week, Ashley? We are talking to our friend Nathan Schneider. We've had him on the show before to talk about co-ops back way back in the day. Um, Nathan is a reporter and a professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. And we're bringing him on now to talk about uh, two momentous anniversaries that we're, that we're um, marking in the year 2021. Yeah. So 10 years ago was sort of this blooming era of protests throughout the world. One was, you know, Occupy Wall Street, that happened here in New York and around the world and also the Arab Spring. And to mark that, Nathan wrote an article in America called Our World is Ripe for Revolution 10 Years After Occupy in the Arab Spring. What have we learned? And the other uh, anniversary we're marking is the five-year anniversary of the death of Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan. Yeah. So we will get into all of that with Nathan. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sip through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? On Tuesday, former police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted on every count he was tried for for the murder of George Floyd. And people around the country, you know, were experiencing a, a range of emotions. But today for the show, we wanted to highlight a few reactions from Black Catholics specifically. Right. So our colleague Ricardo da Silva 
got on the phone today and and spoke to spoke to some really um some folks who you know these are the voices we wanted to hear today um including a couple of people who've been on the show uh anthea butler who came on the show earlier in september said while the guilty verdict in the chauvin trial is a welcome change from the injustices of the judicial system with regards to police killings we should not consider this a victory rather it is a brief respite this unending cycle of violence by law enforcement in america feels like an unending war in which there is no end in sight, nor an answer from God. And Father Brian Massengale, who was on the show back in January uh, to talk about the Capitol riots, uh, said that the Catholic Church in America, quote, needs to embrace the teaching of Pope Francis, that anti-racism is an essential dimension of being pro-life, and that we cannot have pro-life activism without an active commitment to anti-racism. And finally, we heard from Cardinal Wilton Gregory, uh, the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. He said, with this verdict now public, let us renew our commitment to respect one another and remember our shared humanity. We are one human family of various cultures, races, religions, and backgrounds, all made in God's image. May we choose to respond with civility and respect for the dignity of all of our brothers and sisters as we continue the work of rooting out all injustices and systemic racism in our society. Yeah, so that's just a few of the reactions that were featured in Ricardo's reporting. So if you if you want to read all of that, and you should, this is a time to hear from these voices and to listen and to learn, um, you should definitely do that. Head to americamagazine.org for that report and for more analysis of the trial of Derek Chauvin. What's our next story, Ashley? So as listeners probably know, one of the big issues in the 2020 campaign between Joe Biden and uh then President Trump was immigration and refugees. And one of the policies that Biden really ran on was um, putting an end to what he considered Trump's cruel limits on immigration and refugees in this country. That's right. And in fact, one of his first promises after he had won the election was that he was going to raise the cap of refugees admitted to the country from 15,000 to 62,000. And notably for this audience, he made that promise to none other than Jesuit Refugee Service. Yes. So when last Friday, uh, the Biden administration announced that, in fact, they would stick to the 15,000 cap for the fiscal year ending in October, there was a swift backlash from refugee uh, advocates and Democratic lawmakers. That's right. And so, yeah, I don't know, it was a very uh, quick news cycle. Um, so later that afternoon, um, the Biden administration had reverse course saying that they would, in fact, raise the cap to what they had promised earlier. And in addition to raising the overall cap, the new rules also um, lift some of the restrictions on resettlement that Trump had placed on countries like Somalia, Syria, Yemen. Um, and these are places that had been affected by the delay in Biden making this announcement. You know, people had their their flights scheduled to come to the U.S. and they were just waiting for, for this rule to change. And so there was a lot of pressure on Biden to do this and a lot of frustration that he was taking so long to do so. Um, and we don't know the full story behind his reasoning, but it seems to be in part related to the situation at the southern border, which in terms of policy is not 
linked to refugee resettlement, but in terms of politics, um, it, it is. Uh, he's been criticized by people um, for what seems to be a bit of losing control of the situation at the southern border. Yeah. And w- one takeaway from this story before we move on to our next one is just don't lie to Jesuits. <laughs> right. It's really easy. Don't yeah. do that, especially on matters of justice. But speaking of the southern border, that brings us to our next story, um, which involves nuns. Yes. So Catholic Charities USA operates a number of respite shelters along the U.S. border, um, and they've been a bit overwhelmed by uh, the influx in migrants. And this is related to the fact that under Trump, there was the remain in Mexico policy where uh, people who came to the U.S. border seeking asylum were not given um, a entrance and they were forced to wait on the other side of the border in Mexico and often really terrible conditions. Um, so something the Biden administration is doing is starting to process those people, but that has led to um, these shelters on the U.S. side being overwhelmed and trying to take care of uh, a lot of unaccompanied minors or, or families with young children. So in response to that, there was a call put out through the LCWR, which is the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, which comprises uh, a good number of orders of uh, women religious to you know send Catholic sisters to the border to help uh, work, volunteer and take and take care of some of these uh unaccompanied migrants. Yes. And shocking, absolutely no one. 200 sisters answered the call to do this, uh, including Nancy Murray OP. I just learned that you just learned, Zach, who Nancy Murray OP is. I did not know this. It's Bill Murray's sister. Yeah. Um, yep. it, which is just kind of remarkable. And also it feels like one of those stories that it's like someone's trying to tell you to pull your leg. Like, oh, do you know Bill Murray's sister is a nun? Yeah. Which just sounds mm-hmm. like the start of a joke, but it's true. And she is doing great work along with 199 other sisters going down to the border. Um, yeah. So we want to say thank you, sisters, so much for answering that call. Joining us from Boulder, Colorado, is Nathan Schneider. Nathan is a reporter and professor of media studies at the University of Colorado, Boulder. Welcome to Jesuitical, Nathan. I'm so, so glad to be back. Uh, This is one of my favorite (laughs) shows. And uh, the only disappointment that I have about being back is now I won't want to listen to this episode because I'll have to hear my own voice. (laughs) That's how I feel about every episode. (laughs) You just need to embrace that deep inner narcissism. It's not as deep for me, so, but it is weird to listen to your own voice. But this is going to be so insightful. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming back. You were one of our like original guests. Um, We were just talking talking about. Um, you were in sort of the early um, back of the office closet studio that we were in when we started the show. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a kid on my lap. Um, I think we had <laughs> drinks too in those days. Um, but but uh, it, it, if you go back to that episode, you can definitely hear the kid. He's now long, no longer quite so um, whiny and squeaky and now says really <laughs> interesting and, and um, perplexing things that I learned a lot from. Yeah. I think we can see some of his artwork in, in your background. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The the, uh, the home office is also a museum. Amazing. <laughs> I love it. All right. So besides just wanting to check in with you, see how you and the kid are doing, uh, we're having you on this week 
to talk about a couple of anniversaries that are happening um, in 2021. So we'll start with the first one, which is the 10-year anniversary of the Occupy Wall Street movement that happened, started in New York and then kind of spread out from there, as well as the Arab Spring um, in, in the Middle East. Um, so you wrote, you wrote an article about this for America called Our World is Ripe for Revolution, 10 Years After Occupy and the Arab Spring, What Have We Learned? So we want to uh, hear about some of the things we've learned. But first, um, even people who were paying attention back in 2011 found Occupy Wall Street kind of hard to categorize and define and describe. So I'm wondering, as someone who is involved in the movement, um, how do you how do you describe it? Well, I think one of the most important things that people in the U.S. missed about it was was the global context. We're you know mm-hmm. talk about narcissism. You know, we like to we like to see ourselves as the center of everything, and so this movement starts in uh, September uh, 2011 when a group of a few hundred people start occupying this square near uh, near Wall Street, and we're like, okay, new thing. Um, but of course, this was following months of of uprising spreading all over the world starting at the beginning or at the end of of 2010 in Tunisia and then into Egypt and then across the Middle East and then in Greece and Spain so among the participants i think it was much more of an experience of we are joining this this global movement for democracy against plutocracy against forces bearing down on us in different ways in different places um, rather than being something spontaneous and original to the United States. But of course, that's kind of how, how our media interpreted it. Um, and so I, in, in the article for America, I also try to look at it in a global context where there are a lot of, a lot of common patterns uh, for, for better or worse. I think that might surprise American listeners who are like, okay, like maybe there's inequality in the U.S., but we're not as bad as Egypt. So like how did what were what did you see in the revolutions in Egypt and Syria and Tunisia that you're like, yeah, that applies to the U.S. too? Well, it was less about what the what the grievance was and more about the story that um, was being told through people's actions. And the story was the story that went viral on the, at that time, still very new social media networks was a bunch of people hear a call. Uh, They often hear it on social media. In Egypt, it was a a page, a Facebook page called We Are Khaled Said that became a really important rallying point for people. Um, And then they gather in a square um, and they stay there and they occupy this public square until the regime falls. And that's what happened in Tunisia and Egypt. Those are places where they had, you know, decades long dictatorships. And that was the grievance. And it was related to police brutality, uh, uh, the oppression people were feeling in daily in their daily lives. Um, but it was primarily targeted at that that dictator. In Greece and Spain, it was much more targeted um as the uprisings broke out there in the middle of the year uh, against the European Union's austerity programs that were being waged against the people of those countries. Um, so it was much more of an economic grievance. In the United States, it, it was still different. You know, It wasn't obviously the EU context, but it was in the wake of the 2008 crisis after seeing how um, you know, the, as the slogan went, the banks got bailed out and we got sold out, right? And 
this wasn't the, you know, the bottom of the crisis, you know, things were actually starting to get better again by 2011. But, but by this point, there was a frame, uh, there was something that people felt they could do about it, which was this story uh, of protests that had been spreading all around the world. And I think that's a really important reminder that protests often don't break out just because things get really bad. They break out when people feel they have something they can do about it. It's, it's, actually the sense of possibility mm. that often produces uprisings more than the sense of despair. This is an interesting segue because in addition to uh, protest movements, you're also a very uh, smart observer of things of religion and Catholicism. And I'm wondering if you have any insight to if there's something embedded in sort of the 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 DNA of Christianity that is related to, to protest, or I, I guess... The language we typically use is, you know, the prophetic element of our of our faith. But is there something sort of baked into to our our faith in that? Well, I felt kind of embarrassed, uh, you know, when I was covering uh, Occupy because, you know, on the one hand, you know, there there were all these things that were very powerful, also very silly, and and you know, it was kind of being ridiculed in the media, uh, especially early on. But I I would um, at the time I was regularly uh, uh, having dinner with a, a group of, of older Jesuits, in, including Daniel Berrigan, and you know, a group of people who'd been around the movement block more <laughs> for a lot longer than I had. And I, I would come to them and say, like, I feel like I understand the book of Acts better than I ever had. You know, th- there's something about the, the sense of possibility and collective effervescence, as a sociologist would say, um, that uh, that occurs in these kinds of movements, these kinds of uprisings, that breaks down the the barriers that often separate people in da- in daily life. That is so of a kind with faith, and 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 actually, for me, you know, I had converted to Catholicism when I was a teenager, in a weird way, and I can't quite explain it. I, you know, I, I'd spent years trying to wrap my head around that conversion to the point that I actually I wrote a book about it called God and Proof, a book all about proofs for the existence of God. I tried so hard to rationally explain to myself what that what on earth I was doing, and it was actually really in that in the process in the experience of that movement, which was in no way an explicitly Catholic or Christian movement. Nevertheless, it was there that I kind of came into myself as a as a Christian, not because it, you know, again, it was a church, but because it was a place in which the kind of radical possibilities of faith were, were being practiced. And suddenly I felt, hey, you know, this stuff is not so weird after all. I, I can't explain it really, but somehow it was after that that I felt I could finally, you know, uh, come clean to myself and the people in my life that I was, in fact, a Christian. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> no, it does not does not sound weird. Um I'm I'm curious what you think you say it's a weird experience, but like what is Christianity without that kind of radical edge to it that harkens back to the acts of the apostles? Oh boy. Well, yeah, what's the term term Bonhoeffer uses? Uh it's escaping me right now, but it's you know, it's th- this is a an ongoing struggle um in in our in our church throughout history is the, the uh, desire to institutionalize and the capacity to enter into movement moments and to walk that line and to recognize that both are necessary. I, I think the genius of, of St. Francis, for instance, is not simply that he walked around barefoot everywhere and, and uh, gave away 
you know, everything to the poor, but that also he uh, did so kind of in conversation with the popes, right? He was able to walk that line between the institution and confrontation with the institution. Um, Dan Berrigan, too, who, you know, who I mentioned earlier, was someone who is known best for his rebelliousness, um, for his confrontations with the church and, you know, the Vietnam War and the order and the FBI, all, all these things. Yet he also, at great cost, really, insisted on remaining in the Jesuit order, in the church, despite all, all the trouble it gave him. He, his life, in some ways, could have been a lot easier if he had just, you know, um, backed off and become a regular 60s activist like everyone else. But but he insisted that, no, I'm going to retain my accountability to this millennia-old kind of ball and chain because there's something really important about that. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I was I was going to ask you and I'm still going to ask you about the legacy of, of something like Occupy. Um, it seems almost unfair to compare it to something like the Catholic Church going back millennia, but this tension between institution and tradition and then like, you know, the radical acts of protest you know, the Catholic Church has staying power uh, because of some of those institutional elements that it seems like Occupy doesn't have. Um, so is it able to kind of still have a, a lasting impact without that? Well, th- this is in some respect, you know, one of the great mysteries and challenges of popular power in the age of the internet, right? Is that it has become so much easier in some respects to produce acts of resistance and protest mobilized thousands and thousands of people at the drop of a hat. And uh, you just put up the page, let it go viral and bada bing. It looks, you know, it's, it's a little harder than that, but it, it, it can, it's a lot easier than it used to be. You know, I draw on this, this essay a lot on, on this scholar and public intellectual Zainab Tufekci, and, and she compares recent protests to, for instance, the March on Washington, which of 1963 and the civil rights movement, which took years and years and years to organize. And it took structures and organizations with memberships and funds um, to bring all those people to Washington and get them out and uh, uh, that night because there weren't enough hotel rooms that, that were willing to take Black people, so on. And, and there is something gained in one sense in this capacity of kind of e- comparatively easy protest. Um, but there's also something lost we've realized since in these last 10 years, which is that in missing out on that building of organizations and institutions, maybe you have less capacity, as Tufekshi puts it, um, to create political social change. Um, you uh, are, are less able to outlast your opponents and we saw this over and over in the Arab Spring and and the other protests at that time in Egypt. You know, the young techie liberals who launched the protests weren't the ones who really benefited from it. It was the Muslim Brotherhood, a, a right wing Islamist organization that had been organizing in the neighborhoods, in the streets for decades. Um, that was able to win the elections that followed the fall of Mubarak. And that was just such a signal event of the power of old-fashioned organizing overpowering, you know, the apparent signals of, of viral protest. Um, and then, of course, the military comes back and takes over um, after a few months of, of Muslim Brotherhood rule. In other countries, it just led to total chaos. Syria, Libya, Yemen, these ongoing conflicts are all outcomes of what began as nonviolent protests um, in, in 2011. And uh, uh, these are tragedies 
that we are living with and that we have to contend with and recognize that if we're going to use our technology to build greater popular bottom-up power, um, you know, we need to get the balance better um, with institutions and organizations and those old-fashioned methods of building community and trust um, and, and, uh, and the mechanisms that can demand and exact uh, social change. We're talking to you the week that Derek Chauvin was convicted on all three counts uh, that he was charged with in the killing of George Floyd. Um, but this, of course, has been months in the making. I'm wondering, you know, looking back on this this year, which was, you know, watershed in the history of protests, um, what stands out to you is like unique or especially effective about the way that the Black Lives Matter movement was able to get out into the streets? Well, it, it's a great example of, of, of this very challenge is that, you know, when Black Lives Matter began, it began literally as a Facebook post by Alicia Garza, right? And uh, in the wake of of the, you know, apparent exoneration of Zimmerman, the killer of Trayvon Martin. So it's a very, you know, in some ways, a, a poetic contrast to the moment that we've just experienced where, you know, justice, at least as, you know, our, our impoverished system understands it was, was served. Um, the movement began as a series of kind of viral outbreaks whenever one of these incidents would occur where a black person, generally a, a black man, was killed by police in circumstances that seemed very, very um, uh, unfair and wrong, murderous, and that that reflected a deeply felt sense of of daily oppression uh, uh, experienced by African Americans. And these protests spread from place to place whenever an event like this would occur. And it was always striking to me, like that there was this contrast between the organizers. Um, and the um, the story that this movement was in some ways kind of stuck in. It was stuck in this question of how do we um, how do we respond to this particular case? And it would go viral. Um, it often we didn't see the um, in many cases uh, women who were leading as organizers in this movement, like Alicia Garza. We were seeing you know these men who were victims. Um, it, when George Floyd came around, you know. Again, it was a black man who was killed. Um, but by that point, there had been much more work done in terms of building organizations and networks and um, structures of power that were led by those founders uh, who had initially gotten this going, uh, as well as many other people who'd come up in the movement. And I think in 2020, that those organizations were much better equipped to create not just flashpoints, but an ongoing struggle. Um, and so, you know, that that resulted in the the more uh, radical political demand of defund the police, which, of course, is very controversial. And many, many people, you know, wish that that hadn't been there. I think it's a really powerful next step to say, look, we're not just talking about this case and this case and this case. We're talking about a new vision for, you know, justice and uh, and and harm reduction in our society. About that, what is the effect of or the 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 danger of this individual conviction on on the movement as a whole? Because you you know we're already seeing reports that you know you've got lawmakers who are who are whispering that this takes a lot of pressure off 
to do to enact some of the reforms that are requested. How do movements, you know, we could talk about this, the Black Lives Matter movement or movements in general, respond to these individual victories without losing sight of some of the, the larger, more eschatological goals? Well, that that's what organizations are for. And, and that's why it's so important to have something that is more durable than messaging and virality, right? Um, something that can say over and over, no, we really do mean defund the police, or we really do mean whatever whatever we are working for. And we're going to continue evolving what we're working for. But we have a, a space where we can decide, we can make a decision about what it is we are for right now. And so when somebody says, hey, you know, Chauvin was, was, was convicted, game over, right? There's somebody who can say no, authoritatively, right? And say, no, we're, we actually want more than this as well. And that is the thing that in, in those 2011 leaderless movements was so hard. It's like it was very easy for power holders to divide the activists by um, saying, well, some people are satisfied with this verdict. Why aren't the rest of you? And, and it was very difficult to identify, you know, what is actually, what are, what are we standing for? What do we need? Yeah. So we've gotten our wisdom from the you know, history of Occupy. And now I want us to pivot to someone you've brought up a couple of times, Father Dan Berrigan, um, who died in 2016. He was a Jesuit priest, an author, poet, anti-war activist, um, and most famous for his involvement in the Catonville Nine uh, protest action. Um, before we get into your own relationship with Dan, can you can you give us a, a recap of that very uh, dramatic event? Sure. So, uh, you know, th- this was um, part of a sequence of protests um, going on in the Vietnam War era in which draft cards were targeted. The Catonsville action was a, a case in Maryland where Dan, his brother, Phil, who was also a priest, uh, and other uh, associates broke into a uh, a draft office in, in Gainesville, Maryland, and went out to the parking lot uh, kind of ingloriously and, and burned um, these cards uh, with with kind of homemade napalm. And, uh, uh, and, and the, you know, it was a, in some ways a small symbolic action, but um, Dan was a master of performance. He was wanted by the FBI, becomes a fugitive, and uh, appears in various places over the next few months, um, giving talks and, and coming in and out of the underground. Uh, and so is kind of baiting and playing with the FBI in this in this way that makes him kind of um, public enemy number one in some respects and a, a hero of the movement that elevates this, you know, this this in some ways small event into a public uh, phenomenon. And he ends up finally getting caught, you know, in some ways po- poetically at the home of um, the uh, his good friend, the uh, Episcopalian lawyer and theologian William Stringfellow, who's also been a great influence on me. And um, the, the home is called Eschaton, right? Which is, you know, theological world for kind of the end times, right? And and that was the register on which um, Dan was always working was was turning politics into liturgy, and um, and you know, and so I, I spent the earlier part of this conversation focusing on you know strategic power dynamics. Um, that was not really how how Dan operated. He ins- insisted on the importance of that liturgy in a very Catholic sense, recognizing that the liturgical uh, was also real. Um, that simply political calculations are not the only thing things that matter um, in the work of of resistance. That's always like a sentiment I found really challenging um not just in 
the thirst for justice, but even like control over my own life, right? To like sort of the resting and that you might not be able to achieve all that you want to in this life, whether personally or politically. And sort of like a really scandalous message of <laughs> faith, I feel like. Yeah, well, this is this is the... Um you know, these are the struggles that, that any movement undergoes is, is it, it is an act of faith in so many respects. And I think one of the most honest things that I appreciated about and learned from Occupy Wall Street was that was, was it also had that resistance to the kind of immediate and the practical Um, people kept demanding, what is your demand, you know, and they would respond with these poems or they would respond with a list of, this is our one demand a hundred times and list all these different things. Um, Or they would promulgate poems or, or, or works of art. Um, uh, You know, they, they they had a Maypole um, on May day in 2012 that had a, all these grievances attached to them. And and there was a sign over the top that said, all our grievances are connected and people wove them together as one does with a maypole. And, and this was the generation that had just elected Obama. You know, this was, these are people who that was their first political experience was this tremendous triumph. And yet a few years into the Obama administration, it was clear that this system was not going to tolerate the kind of hopey changey ambitions that people had you know, had hoped for in that election cycle. And um, Occupy, in some respects, was that generation saying, okay, stop, wait a second. What is it that we actually care about most? What is it that uh, we actually want the world to look like? And I think there was a tremendous courage in in entering that space of uncertainty, that impracticality to ask ask that question. Just going back to something you said before about the the liturgical aspect of, of Occupy and, and protest. So what, what makes a, a political or protest act liturgical or vice versa? What makes a liturgical act political and which, which one were you kind of like trying to describe there? Well, liturgy is, is the insistence that performance is actually effective in our lives is something that we need and crave and that satisfies our, our hunger, particularly in a Catholic sense. Um, it, it is that, you know, Eucharistic idea too, you know, the Eucharist is the center of the Catholic liturgy, that this thing is actually bread, right? That these actions, these repetitive actions are actually reenacting something. They are bringing, making God present to us. Um, and and movements also are conjuring a reality through performance. Um, one thing that, that one notices is, is movements are often very, very fixated on their anniversaries. You know, they, they create a sense of time, a sacred time, just as liturgy does, you know, as, as Abraham Joshua Heschel, you know, famously uh, insisted out of the Jewish context that, that liturgy and the, the um, sacred calendar creates, uh, you know, it reshapes time and movements try to do that too, um, to, to build a new reality by uh, forging new senses of what time markers we use to um, to divide up and understand our lives. So as movements create these performances, building on past performances, building on what they did before, um, they are trying to weave this this impression that they're that the new reality that they're creating is actually all of our reality. And and you see that with with what Black Lives Matter has just achieved, right? In terms of insisting so much that Black Lives Matter in so many ways, 
that, you know, it actually finally gets through to a jury, um, despite all the mechanisms that per- protect police um, from accountability for violence that they carry out. Um, that that the reality that this movement has been building through its performances uh, over years um, has become so much more um, part of our shared reality now. I just have one more question um, going back to Dan Berrigan. Um, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about what he was like as a person on a, on a, on a personal level. You know, we're at the five-year mark and this is sort of where, I don't know, people in the Catholic world get turned into bigger things than they were in their individuality. Um, I wonder if you could just maybe ground that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, the, the more I got to know Dan and the people around him, the, the more I realized that there were many Dans. Um, the, the, the Dan I knew was, by the time I knew him, was in his 90s. He was very old. And, and he, for instance, would say mass in his own word. Every word was a poem. I mean, it, he he spoke and lived in this in this liturgical universe, um, and it was uh, it was kind of hard to even have a, nor- a, a normal conversation with him because you'd think, oh no, he's going to say something so insanely beautiful, I can't stand it. And yet, somehow, we would be able to have normal conversations. Um, I also met people, for instance, who were very um, felt hurt by him because he demanded so much of the people around him. You know, he was always demanding that that we all do more, that we all live out the a recognition of the deep injustice around us all the time. I also, you know, one of our great mutual friends uh, was a woman whose husband had died of AIDS, and Dan had accompanied him in that death, and they remained friends. You know. Um, up to Dan's own death, you know, she would continue bringing him martinis at, at, uh, to his bed. And and so there was a sense of compassion. Uh, uh, you know, there were just so many sides of him. There was the, I mean, the beautiful account that William Stringfellow um, gave of him as a friend, as a peer, as a, as a kind of creative co-conspirator. Um, and so, you know, there, there were so many sides. There were also, you know, the, there was the Dan of his enemies, you know, who was, he was somebody who was kind of, um, uh, impossible to deal with, frustrating, um, you know, would, would kind of never let you have your way. You know, one of my favorite stories is this, um, he, he was asked to do a, uh, a commencement speech at the, you know, Regis, the fancy Jesuit high school on, uh, on the Upper East Side. And, and apparently what he said, he just got up and said, know where you stand and stand there. And then, you know, Mike dropped off and, and, you know, you can just imagine how angry whoever invited him must have been like, you know, Dan, do you know how many donors are in the audience? You know, couldn't you have at least talked for 10 minutes? You know, um, And, and so, it, you know, it's those, it's those kind of contradictions of a, of a person that, that became more and more apparent um, the more I got to know him and people around him. Um, and, you know, in all of it, I just feel grateful to have had the you know, chance to see, uh, the, the bits and pieces I, I did that my great regret is not, um, surreptitiously recording more of those masses because they were, um, just incredible works of art and, and of faith. More of, it sounds like you have at least one. Oh, no, any, I, I then again, you no, know, any. Oh, it, no. it is, it, it just <laughs> yeah. never, you know, I, of course, I, I mean, this was pre COVID, right? Of course, you know, now we don't think twice yeah. about recording a mass, or, but somehow it seems like it seemed at the time like that would be um, impossibly 
uh, secular. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, 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 there was like a personally and professionally like that. I, th- a lot of Dan's legacy, I don't know, came through and was sort of like a watershed moment for me. It was actually one of the first assignments Ashley and I were on together was <laughs> kind of covering his funeral um, five years ago. And so he was a, I mean, really a beautiful person is expressed to the people that loved him like yourself. Um, so thank you for sharing a little bit of that, um, on this, his like fifth anniversary of his death. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, and, uh, yeah, lately, uh, you know, those, those obnoxious Facebook reappearances of your past, um, (laughs) have uh, been showing, showing pictures of him, uh, uh, over and over and and it's just like gosh your, your algorithms know me so well you really know how to, <laughs> how, to um, how to get to me um because it's you know that 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 circle was was so important to me all right well i think you know what our actual last question is going to be um if you could canonize any person catholic or not living or dead who would it be and why okay so i've been waiting for this the person I want to introduce, um, and I, I, I've signed up for the email list of his canonization campaign, and I encourage you all to do the same, is Ben Salmon, uh, spelled like the fish. Um, he is a, a, a Denver native. I live in Colorado now. My family you know, was uh, partly from here, too. And uh, so I appreciate that part. He was a World War I conscientious objector. Um, and this is a time, unlike a bit later, where being a conscientious objector was like, you were the scum of the earth, you were put into solitary confinement, you were maltreated. This eventually, he survived that process, but years later, he died of, of the um, wounds accumulated uh, during that time. And also in prison, he wrote really the first comprehensive Catholic critique of just war theory. And now we're at a time where our Pope has called this just war theory into question in much the same terms. Um, so this is someone who saw where the church needed to go at a time where it was very, very painful um, to do that. And, and, and this is someone who was also a martyr uh, for that cause. Uh, so, so Ben Salmon, I, I submit to you as um, someone that we should um, that we should consider as you know on the on the short list uh, for sainthood in the coming years. All right. St. Ben Salmon, pray for us. We will put a link to his his cause in our show notes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Awesome. Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time. It's always a treat um, and really appreciate it. And hope you and your family are doing well in these times. Thank you. You both too. Thank you for your ongoing updates on, you know, how you're thinking and reflecting your way through this pandemic. I've really appreciated it. Of course. Thanks, Nathan. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. Last week, we told you all that America was about to celebrate its 112th anniversary. um, And with that comes our annual giving day. And if you're someone who 
gave to us on on Wednesday, April 21st. We just wanted to give you a huge thank you. That's right. Um, We couldn't do this without you. The show, this media ministry, um, all of this happens with your support. And so thank you so much from the bottom of all our hearts here at America. And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I got a consolation this week, and it I don't know. I've talked about on the show being like really anxious about getting back into normal life. Um, I don't know. It just feels like schedules are filling up for the future and things are opening. And, you know, I, I'm just, a, I don't know. I feel a sense of dread for no reason. Cause I'm on the other hand, I'm like really excited about all these things happening. Mm. Um, but this past weekend we were able to host my mom in New York, um, who's got her vaccine and all that, which is great. And, it's the first time that she has really um, seen uh, mine and my wife's place or my sister's place um, since we moved into them. And that's been, I know, killing her and also like killing us. And it was just great to, I don't know, spend time with mom, right? That's if you, if you're in need of a consolation, like call your mom, <laughs> that's more of a story. Yeah. Um, but it sort of brought me out of this anxiety and this sort of self self inward look about what's what what I'm going to be feeling about opening back up because this was a, a real sign of opening of things changing and it was brought a lot of gratitude to me. So um, thanks, mom, for coming and uh, thanks thank God for uh, the consolation this weekend. <laughs> That's great. What do you have this week, Ashley? Uh- also a consolation. And speaking of getting back to normal life, I got on an airplane for the first time wow. <laughs> in over a year to visit the person who has been my best friend since I was one and a half years old, um, who now lives in Los Angeles and in February had her first baby. Um, so I flew out there as soon as I you know, had the two weeks after my vaccine shot um, and it was safe to do so. Um, but the constellation was, so I know with this friend, I have this constant temptation to compare and be jealous and be like, wow, you are so beautiful and you have this perfect life in LA and you have a husband, you have a baby and you have a great job. And like, that's just like, I can, I know that is some place that my mind likes to go sometimes. Um, so I really like didn't want my trip to be defined by like me comparing myself to my best friend. Um, so I was just very upfront with God. I was like, God help me not do that. Um, and like to be present to my friend, because not only am I like denying the only, you know, the gifts I have, but like, I'm not seeing her as a full person when I'm just putting her on a pedestal. Um, and I'm not opening myself up to like real relationship with her when it's about like this competition in my own head. Um, and so I was really able to do that during this trip. And not only did it just like make for a wonderful time with her, like I feel like she was able to open up about challenges and struggles she has in her own life in a way that I haven't experienced before. And that I, that wouldn't be possible if we weren't just like being our authentic selves with each other and not reverting to like high school competitions. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it was really, it was really wonderful, uh, to be able to like be with her in that way in this time. And in that Los Angeles sunshine. (laughs) Yeah. In the sunshine with a new baby. It was good ground, good fertile ground. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Get us out of here. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.